Shapeshifters. Shapeshifters brought to you by 10X Investments, disrupting an industry for better investment returns. 10X Investments, why settle for anything less? Tonight's guest was destined to be a school teacher. His name is John Schooling, but he left teaching and uh, started a property business, property development, student housing, and nowadays also in renewable energy. But 30 years ago, he was the phys ed teacher at Camps Bay High. In those days, phys ed teachers used to wield the rod. Were Were you one of those? Good evening, Bruce. No, not at all. I actually loved teaching, and I would have probably carried on teaching if it wasn't for circumstances that forced me out of it. I kind of found that poverty in myself, and as a teacher, you are very poor and broke by the 10th of the month. We're incredibly uncomfortable bedfellows, so I decided to become what's commonly known as a bucky builder. Oh, is that what you did? So that was the transition. So you became one of them. I was indeed. I must say it was a very, very easy life. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was very real. It was not abstract. You did something, you saw the results. That was actually very rewarding, funnily enough. Now, but people who have left uh, an environment where you produce something every day or every week or every month, there's a physical product at the end of your labor, um, like I suppose young children graduating from school or whatever, or builders, there's a huge amount of satisfaction in having a physical object at the end of it. A friend of mine went from magazines and into consulting and was deeply frustrated by consulting simply because... It was everybody else's results that were tallied up and you had nothing physical to prove for it. So I I get you. I understand. Um, From Bucky building, though, into actually going into uh, the environment of of property development and student housing. You started this project 30 years ago. That's almost a natural progression. You know, when, you, when you're a builder, you're reliant on work being given to you or you tender and you win work. And eventually what my partner and I did in about 86, we decided that – 86, 87, 88, that period – we decided that we just couldn't get enough work tendering. And the market was so competitive that big companies that were tendering at below cost. So what we decided to do was to create our own work for our building company. And that forced us into the property development industry. Most of the stuff that's happened to our company has been, to a certain extent – by accident, really, than by intent. So moving into property development was a process from looking for work to eventually becoming a full-time property developer with a division that was a contractor and and built, and then eventually moving into full-time property development. What was your first development? What was the the switch? Uh, We did six houses in a little area called Deep River Village, Ah. Uh, six beautiful little houses, and um, we managed to buy the land because uh, because property. I mean, because construction was such a positive cash flow generator, we managed to buy the land for cash. At that stage, it was 180,000 rand, <laughs> and we built six houses on it. Uh, and that was more or less the switch from there. Then we grew quite quickly to 17 houses, and then ultimately to 300 houses, and then from then on to bigger projects. So, but but residential is often, I think, the first step that people take when it goes into building a construction business. And houses are easy; you can do one at a time. You can you can do the renovation stuff. First. First, and you, you cut your teeth on that. Then you do the physical building, and then it's one house, then it's the 10, then it's the 20, and then you take on the bigger project. Correct, and then you move more from not looking for an individual market person or person in the market to sell to, then you start looking for people to rent your stock. Once they're renting your stock, you're able to hold on to it because that is actually your security, is your tenants, uh, the quality of your tenant. How long did it take you to get to that point? 
Um, we moved quite quickly, but I guess 1990 was really the big turning point. We were a small little company doing very, very well pre-1990. And then after 1990, there was quite a surge in the industry generally, a big hiccup in 1994 before the election. But we were accidentally again poised for <laughs> a positive result. And uh, I saw a massive surge in confidence in South Africa after the elections were came and went. But that period between 1990 when Nelson Mandela was released from prison in February 1990, all the way up until not long before, probably a day before the elections when Mangasutu Putelezi was uh, was convinced that he really should put the IFP on the ballot paper. Those were scary years for people in business. They were indeed. But I think for me, the most telling point and almost like the turning point in, in our company's life was in 1990 when we as the white population of South Africa were given the opportunity to vote yes or no to follow and to support the president's decision to continue the process of negotiation. That was what, 91? referendum in 91 mm. and uh, when that happened I made a commitment to my company I said if we vote no we're out of here I'm leaving I'm closing down I'm going to leave this country if we vote yes though nothing is going to get in our way we're going to carry on growing and developing and we'll commit ourselves to the country that was an early catalyst then I mean that was that was a big commitment because it could still have gone very very badly wrong after that but you saw the the will and the intent of white South Africans to accept that they the status quo couldn't prevail Yes, it was absolutely like a, a, a light switch moment. Um, it was incredible for once. Two things had happened. South Africa in 1990 had acted incredibly bravely by breaking the mold. And in 1991, when that vote, the last time that white people were allowed to make a stupid decision or a good decision, we decided to go the right way and make the good decision, which was proceed with negotiation. And from then on, it was like a massive cloak or massive darkness was lifted off of us. Mm. And we then suddenly felt we were with South Africans. I remember a gentleman, a colored gentleman in Cape Town driving around with a speaker on the roof of his car saying, thank you, white South Africans, for doing this. And, uh, you know, we all kind of felt good about it. We all felt like we'd started this journey towards a better future and that we'd left the past behind. So for us, that was the big light light bulb moment. So it, it then gives you the opportunity to invest and the referendum I'm told my producers is 1992. It was a long time ago, producers. You weren't even born yet. Um, and we've forgotten because it's such a long time ago. Um, but yeah, that, that referendum was a seminal moment. But you, you then go into developing student accommodation, which, I mean, in retrospect, was massively visionary. And well, again, it was, it was an accident, right? As, as usual with everything we do. Uh, <laughs> it does happen like that, I'm afraid. I think sometimes you position yourself in such a way that you're vulnerable or open to suggestions and open to a changing market. Uh, so if you're sitting there with your eyes open saying, well, I wonder what's next, uh, then very often you're able to see what's next. If you aren't sitting there looking for an alternative, then very often you might miss that opportunity when it comes along. So what happened was in 2008 was pretty tough. October 2008, we sat with a piece of land that we'd managed to acquire in District 6. We were going to do a very nice four star type development. The banks pulled the money in 2009. So we went to Cape Peninsula University of Technology and said to them, would you like a student accommodation development. Their response was very, very positive to partners of ours that were going to do the development. And as a consequence, we decided to investigate further. Our research at the time showed that there was about 100, 150, 200,000 beds short in the country. In uh, student we, accommodation? Student accommodation, correct. And uh, we then decided, wow, this seems like a very interesting market. But we had a look at how much it was costing us to produce for Capenista uh, University of Technology. And the price at 262000 per bed, knowing what the students could afford, 
told me that this was not affordable. So we started saying, well, if it's not affordable, how are we managing to do this? And the only way we were managing was through government subsidization. And we felt that that's not a sustainable model. So we asked a big question, well, how can we make this affordable? And the two answers that jumped out at us was optimal architectural design and then product innovation. So the question then becomes, well, what is optimal architectural Mm. design? So I jumped on a plane and flew around the entire world and came back after visiting. What a great excuse, yeah. yes. What a wonderful excuse. So I traveled all over the States, to, um, throughout the whole of America. I went to Holland. I went to Britain. I went to Germany. I, and I saw what they were doing. And I came back with a great conclusion that we don't know what optimal architectural design. And the reason for that is because we can't predict the future, we can't design for the future. So if we can't design for the future, how do we plan for the future? So you then start working on the concept of principles. So there were five principles that guided the optimal architectural design. And those principles are you designed for community, sustainability, innovation, flexibility, and also technology. Then two that we said in Africa, there are three additional ones that we must work on. So the three additional principles that we introduced was uh, affordability, which is obviously critically important. And affordability in Africa is very difficult to affordability in the rest of the world, in America, for example. Then job creation. And then finally, is there access to grant funding? When we apply all eight of those principles, we come up with the concept of architectural design. And then, of course, the next big principle was product innovation. And those two factors have become the most exciting part of my entire life, in actual fact. Once we've discovered innovative building technology, which happens to be green, by the way, and optimal architectural design, we had the solution to the problem. I need you to paint a picture for me in just a moment as to what all of this looks like. How does it manifest Physically, You've got no bits of paper. You've got no whiteboards. You've got no architect's drawings to assist you. There are no mock-ups. There are no mood boards. There's none of the stuff that comes with it. So I'm looking forward to getting visual pictures painted by uh, my guest this evening. I'm thoroughly enjoying John Schooling, the founder of Stag African, to focus on a whole bunch of stuff, but mostly student housing, renewable energy. John Schooling had a good backing in student accommodation, background in student accommodation, because he was a student at Stellenbosch for seven years years. He went and got a real job, and that was teaching at Camps Bay High. He was a phys ed teacher, but then couldn't afford to teach anymore, became a bucky builder. As he became a bucky builder, he evolved the business of bucky building into from residential developments and into, by 2008, as we are hearing, into these principles-driven architectural pieces that are solving um, the the problem of student accommodation, not only in South Africa, but across the African continent. The, the principles that you take us through, it strikes me that you've are you a philosopher or do you talk to philosophers or are you a philosophical builder by nature? I think I might be driven a little bit by philosophy. I'm very influenced by people and how we affect them with what we do. But really what's happened is that I've had the privilege of meeting so many highly intelligent people at universities who are in charge of student housing, which they refer to as student communities. I think the single person that had the most influence on me is a guy called Peter Kloppers, who's a director at Stellenbosch University in, the, in student communities. And they've, they've intellectualized and philosophized student accommodation and delivery thereof to such an extent that it's taken it to a completely different plan. Hence the reason why they don't refer to student housing anymore. They speak about student communities. I mean, when I was in residence, my residency had been built, I think, probably in the 1930s. The rooms were exactly the same size. The wooden floors were the same wooden floors. I think the cupboard was the same one that the first occupant ever used. It was fine, 
But it wasn't particularly sensible. It wasn't particularly green. It wasn't particularly architecturally satisfying. So what's changed? Paint me a picture of what the, stu- what's, of what the student community of the 21st century looks like. Well, the important thing that we must differentiate and make sure that we don't differentiate is between my students, our students at the University, Walter Sassouli University, in, for example, Imtata, where we've built residences recently, the University of Fortier, where we're currently building, uh, the University of Zambia, where we're going to be building, and the University of Stellenbosch. There's one common element between all of them. Every one of them deserves the very best accommodation we can possibly build them. And those principles that we applied at Stellenbosch University are the same principles that we apply everywhere. Uh, in actual fact, a very sad but very interesting thing was said to me by an SRC member from the University of Walter Sassouli University from, from Umtata who came down to Cape Town to Stellenbosch to have a look at one of our residences. And she said, but these are too good for us. But when I was showing the residence, I said, absolutely not. You are as important as any student at this residence, and you are the most important people in, in our country. And when she said, why? I said, you are our future. You are the people that lead this country. You will be our leaders of the future. And one of the most important things for you to succeed at university is to make sure that you are safe, secure, and sound, and that you are in good on-campus accommodation that's built and designed in such a way that it will help you optimize your student, your student experience. Paint me a picture of this modern-day residence? It's called a home. It's really quite simple. It's about creating communities. Remember, I, I always love this picture. Let's take a young lady from the middle of Kuno or something like that in the Eastern Cape, which, by the way, I come from that area. Uh, she moves from a small little community from her home, and she moves to a university. When you step onto that campus, it's a terrifying experience. You're suddenly one of 27,000 people. Now you suddenly have to make your way around there. You're one amongst all these millions, and it's absolutely terrifying. I was terrified when I was at university. Bruce, when you arrived there, you were terrified. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't leave the town that I went to school in. I knew my way around. I, I, I did lots of prep work, but I'm unusual in that respect. <laughs> feel fortunate for you, but the majority of our students actually come from rural I too, areas. I was too lazy to go <laughs> anywhere else. So when, we get, when you get there, you end up in this massive university. Sure, no, I get the point. Though. So ending up in a smaller residence of about 200 people improves the sense of that you're in the neighborhood. Then you end up in, in a single res itself on a single pod, which we then call the home, and you have your room within that home. A so pod sounds compact. Correct. It's, uh, it's a home that consists, in our particular case, of eight students, and they're in an apartment uh, where there'll be, for example, two showers, two separate showers, two, uh, two separate toilets, four hand, wash hand basins, a kitchen, dining, living area. Uh, and that's what we have for our students. So. And these principles are universal across this continent. I mean, this is, do you have a stock standard approach that you deliver to Stellenbosch, to Umtata, uh, to Zambia? The philosophies are all exactly the same. Okay. That doesn't change at all. For example, the but the bar- budgets will change and that will impact finish, it'll impact size, scale, that sort of stuff? Somewhat, somewhat. But through, inter- through optimal architectural design and product innovation, we're managing to bring the cost down to the point where it's actually affordable, even for our poorest students. At the moment, the current models that are running in South Africa, it costs 370,000 rand, 350,000, somewhere around there, to build a single bed. We're looking to reduce that cost to 180,000. Because, I mean, you look at that 350,000 and what's the life of a student bed, if you like, 20 years? I mean, what's the, the, the useful life? You, you would hope it would go for longer than that. But you can amortize that cost far more quickly um, as, as the, the owners of the, of the asset, the university, um, and actually make some, make some profit out of it eventually. Absolutely. Um, 
the material or innovable in technology that we use, the material itself lives for 3,000 years. So it again exists for 3,000 yeah, well, years. We, yeah, we'll check in with you in <laughs> 2,990 years from now. But 50 years, 100 years durability, yeah. that's absolutely fine. A very important concept, though, is the functional durability of a building. Now, that doesn't mean the building is not going to last longer than that. But functionally, every building changes dramatically in its use after 35 years. So there comes in the principle of flexibility. At the end of 35 years, can you substantially differentiate or change that building so that it can function effectively in 35 years' time as effectively as it's functioning today? And if you've designed for flexibility, the answer is yes, we can do that. And technology has changed the game as well. I mean, if you walk around Oxford University in Oxford, for example, it's impossible to think that anybody ever lived in those rooms pre-electricity and survived. They must have gone blind at a very young age. Good pokey little windows, pokey dark rooms. I mean, the world has moved on, thank goodness. And you can imagine how incredibly cold those buildings were because they were made out of rock. Yeah, absolutely better. But now also, just take me through the renewable energy side of this business as well, because so much of architecture now and more and more councils are so much more aware of anything to do with renovations or building new buildings. You've got to be eco-friendly. That's correct, yes. And yet again, part of the accident that happens to us, um, this new technology that we found, innovative in technology, when we start asking questions about how green it was. Where did you find it? You say you found it. Uh, internationally. As I mentioned, I traveled all over the world. Yeah. And I said, what is normal practice outside of South Africa? And normal practice out of, outside of South Africa is what we in South Africa would call innovative in technology, which we almost define as anything that's not bricks and mortar. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the world has moved on quite dramatically. They, the exception is to find a building that's built with bricks and mortar. In South Africa, the norm is bricks and mortar. And now suddenly we're discovering that there's a lot more technology out there that is even better than bricks and mortar. One of the major problems with bricks and mortar is that the building is actually not thermally balanced. Innovative building technology that we're currently using, the buildings are thermally balanced. So you use less electricity, for example, to heat it up or cool it down. So we move from bricks and mortar, which is a high carbon emitting process, sure. to innovative building technology, which in actual fact is very, very green. And I could spend half an hour talking about that. No doubt. The next step on <laughs> green technology, we send in our building a building that not only are we going to be able to say that it's very, very green, but in actual fact, we're going to be able to ca- claim carbon credits on the actual methodology that we're using. And then you add to that the green elements of photovoltaic, um, the heat pumps, solar e- heating for the water, LED lights, and all those additional things. And suddenly, the building that you're sitting with is amongst the greenest residences that have ever been built in the world. How, I mean, this is pan-African. You've obviously got lots of growth opportunity on this continent. That's the next five years. But where does the next accident happen for you guys? I think it's becoming more and more that we're actually doing, we're looking at an African country at the moment, and we're about to tie up a 300 megawatt solar power plant on that company, in that country. And um, we're basically about a month away from doing that. So what we want to do is part of everything that we're doing is everything we want to do from now on has to be uh, tick the green box. In In other words, it must be sustainable. So if anything's sustainable, we're willing to do it. Uh, so that becomes the next step in the right direction is that sustainability as far as electrical supply. So we're very keen on biomass. We want to look at the biomass space because that gives you base load. Uh, renewable energy as far as wind and solar is fantastic. And then concentrated solar power is the next one that we're looking at as well. So we're really interested in that sphere as well and we're expanding into that at a rate of nuts. It's an amazing story of a guy who started out as an, uh, an everlasting student, seven years at Stellenbosch University. It wasn't wasted, became the phys ed teacher property developer, and now a renewable energy 
what would I call you? I want to say maniac. Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. <laughs> there we go. That's the more polite way of putting it. His name is John Schooling.